afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. I am Lisa Harwell, your host of Journeys with Jones Harwell. Today on Unapologetic Features, we have the wonderfully beautiful, talented young lady gracing the screen with me, Sandra Kersey Stockton. Hi, Sandra. How are you this afternoon? I'm fine, Lisa. Thank you so much for inviting me to be on the show. I'm truly thank, grateful. Thank you for coming. Before we get started with our conversation on generational history and self-worth and care and love and talking about your books, tell our audience a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, 72 years plus. been married for 48 years to my second husband. I was born in Pennsylvania in a small town back then called York, Pennsylvania. Kind of big right now. It's annexed everywhere. I was born to a working father, a mother, a stay-at-home mother, and there were seven children in our family. I'm the second oldest. We had a brother named Clifford, and he was the baby boy. So I did time raising my, raising my siblings as much as I could until I became a teenage parent. I became a teenage mom and ended up being widowed at 19 with four children of my own and a niece hanging on to me. And then over the years, I decided it was time to write a book, so finally... At age 70, I decided to write it, and I wrote. I have two books now, and I have one more to go to the series. And I see the the the, uh, the the book behind you is the first one. I have the second one here. Okay. I, I bought them out of out of order. I bought okay. the first one as an ebook, and but I have the second one that I need for you to sign for me. Absolutely. And yes. So we're going to talk about why you feel that generational history is so important? Generational history is very important. When I first decided, to, I've always wanted to write a book. When I got really serious about it, I thought, what will I write about? And then I started thinking about, I need to write something that my children and my grandchildren and children to come can hold on and refer back to about my life. And I thought I could put enough in the book to help them get through their lives as they grow. I think that people always get fixed on money. And we all know the money is the root to all evil. It is. So if I had a lot of money, my husband and I, for generational money to pass on my children, after they spend it, then what? What are my grandchildren going to get? The money's going to probably be gone. However, generational history can be passed on forever. They won't go broke reading the books. I plan to put enough in there that's going to help not just my children, my grandchildren, but my nieces and nephews and my siblings to know what happened behind closed doors back in the 1940s and 50s. I think basically generational history, you can't put a price on it. You just no, can't. No, it, cannot. It, gave, it gave me the opportunity as far as I'm concerned to break negative cycles. Cause you know, long time ago, and you probably heard in your family, if your mother, your father, nothing leaves this house, whatever happens in this house, stays stay in this house. house. Mm -hmm. So my mother was getting beat to nearly death. Mm. My siblings and I all knew it but we dare not speak a word about it. I'm sure the neighbors in the in our street knew everything that was happening in that house. You know, even though we didn't have social media like we have it today, mm -hmm. they had back porch social media back in the day, front porch. Somebody was always sitting on the porch. Somebody was always in somebody's business. Somebody was always writing a note to somebody and somebody was always telling everything. So people knew, but people dare not interfere. And back then, if somebody did interfere and call the cops, like we call the cops now, not the police, call the cops. And they mm -hmm. came to the house and knocked on the door and asked us if everything was okay. 
when they did that at my house, my father was the one answering that door. Mm. They said, everything okay? He said, officer, everything's okay. There's no problems here. Okay, sir, have a nice day. And slam the door and go. Well, my mother's in here bleeding damn near to death. But the police just left. I mean, so my mother went through that for years. My mother didn't break away from my father until I was 10. And that's a long story. And it's in my book, how my grandmother came to help her mm. to get out of that. So I think generational history is going to help my family break negative cycles. Mm -hmm. It's also going to help them to understand the positive cycles, the things of why we are, because things that are in me are in my children or my niece and nephew, because we share the same blood from my parents, Dorothy Mae Jackson Smallwood and William Jr. Smallwood. My family needs to know the Jackson family of my mother. They don't know and they needed to know. So I made sure to put a lot of that in the book to let them understand where they come from. And even though it's not in my book about other things I share on social media, mm -hmm. I try to share medical history, things like that, that's going to help these children along the way. Because who's going to tell them my parents are dead? Right. And, and I think it's important. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. And I think it's more important. So now these days, because we hear this critical theory, right, mm -hmm. going on where we are systematically and systemically being erased our history from the yes. history of what yes. has actually happened. And it exactly. was the time that generations were telling, especially uh, when we had that village and that community. And I'm old grandma, everybody the same neighborhood. Our history yeah. and passing that history forward. So I love how you talk about generational uh, history because it is so important for us to capture yes. ourselves and be accurate about it. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Wonderful. So with writing this book, you and I, I've met you. I've had yes. the pleasure of talking with you several times and every time I'm learning something new about you. And one of the things I love so much about you is your resilience, your ability to fight and continue to just push forward no matter what the adversity is. Yes. So when you talk about your first book and the second book, which is a continuation of the first one that talks about some of the things that you've gone through in life. Um, the first that you've mentioned that at 19, you were widowed with four children and took in your niece yes. as well. Uh, that's just, you know, kids of our gener, you know, uh, kids of this generation, and I don't think even at 19, I would have been prepared. To, to, to I wasn't, you just get prepared. But you did it, and 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 you did it not only that you, you changed your circumstances, because you are a military veteran, and I commend you for your service Thank to you. our country, but then you became a nurse, and you know, you... Yes. you did enough to motivate your kids and move your kids forward. And you talk about your ministry, which we'll talk about a little bit later, um, that your passion is now, which is still helping kids. So tell us a little bit more um, if you want to share the story about your, your, your book and uh, why it is important to not give up and how you found that strength to not give up. Well, one of the things and we, you and I talked about this offline about loving oneself. Mm -hmm. I think that I really can't sit here and give an answer as to when I started loving Sandra. Mm. I couldn't figure that out for a long time. I think personally I was in hostage for my past. 
I often think about my dad scraping my knees and the knees of two of my other sisters because we were darker than the rest, scraping our knees with a scrub brush when we had to get in that big tub, bathtub for our turn for a bath and telling my mom, their knees are too black. That's just too much dirt. He was scrubbing. We'd be hurting and we better not there be crying. And my mother would tell him, that's the color of their skin. That can't come off. I also always remembered about my dad beating me because I looked like my mom, lucky me. And plus I was a tomboy. He always told her, oh, she's going to be gay. She ain't going to have no children. She ain't going to have no husband. He said so many things. I was just a little girl, but I remember him. So those things made me make choices as such to look out for my mom when she got away from him because she was struggling when I was old enough to contribute, mm -hmm. to look out for my siblings and my children and nieces and nephews who all came along living in and out of my house. You probably read that in the book. I was always there when somebody said, Aunt Sandy, mm -hmm. our sister, can you help me out? I'm stuck. You know, if I needed to help, I was going to step in and help. I married after being widowed for five years. And I'll just say straight up forward. I wasn't in love when I got married. Nope. No matter what anybody thought when I was walking down that aisle to take those vows, in my head, in Sandra's head, I found a man who agreed to take care of me and my kids. Mm. My first thing was I needed a father for my kids and a husband for me second. So way long time ago, marriages were made. People paid people to marry their kids, this mm -hmm. marriage, that marriage, and it worked out. I didn't look at it like that. I looked at I was trying to get myself out of the projects because I felt like if I didn't find my way out of there, I would grow up being there, teaching my kids to be there and just continue to repeat that cycle in the projects, on phones, food stamps, on welfare. That was not going to be my plan. My mother was a working mom. My dad, even though he was abusive, was a working man. He was a long haul truck driver. So I knew that I wanted more. And I didn't love my husband for a long time. He knew that I had a love for him. But as far as being in love with him, I can't tell you that that happened that day. But I knew I was on my path to go wherever I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. So I decided if that marriage didn't work out, I still got what I wanted. I got out of the projects, out of my town, out of the state of Pennsylvania and Merlin, so I can move on and keep pushing as to where I wanted to go. Mm -hmm. No, it took me a long time to love Sandra, and it wasn't then. It's right. important to love yourself. And and say I love that piece there because a lot of women think that you, because of your circumstances, where you start, you're stuck. And, you know, uh, I often say sometimes the walk can be a minute. It can be an hour. It could be three years. Mm -hmm. But as long as you continue to persevere, continue to push yourself yep. and just that little bitty hope, you know, that even if there's just a little bit of hope that you hang on to, yep. it will help you change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> so what made you decide? Cause in, in, I, like I said, I know your story, but I want you to tell pieces of your story and give okay. some encouragement to anyone that's out here listening. What made you decide to to not only go into the military, but then you went into the military and you went to school and bettered your situation there? I always look back to my mother. I credit her for so many things. I credit my mother for the family connectivity that we have. 
and all the children and grandchildren and great grand and someone that belong and started from my parents. I credit my mother for giving us that family connectivity because no matter what we do or what we go through, we all love each other. We all love each other. It's kind of like, and you've probably heard this. It could be, I mean, at one time, my sister didn't speak to me for five years, mm. but never once did our children stop talking to each other. Wow. They were always trying to intervene to get us back together. It took five years, but eventually we got back together. But without my mother being in our heads, that connectivity may not have ever took place. Because I'll speak back to my mother's um, mother, my grandmother, and her sister. Until the day they died, my grandmother never spoke to her sister. Mm. That's a whole other story. Never. She vowed to never speak to her sister, and she never did. And I didn't want that with my sister. I wanted to, for us to figure out what we needed to do to get back together. So I credit my mother for the connectivity. I mean, she had so much strength. She even at one time told me, I almost could have slapped my mom, but I knew better. She told me one time that she forgave my father for all the things that he did to her. And her reason was that she felt that he lived the best way he knew how. She might have been right. She might have been right. But Sandra, history. Sandra couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand that. But anyway, she forgave him. I always wished that I had forgiven him before he died. But I never did. And maybe one day I will. I don't know. Maybe one day I will, but I can tell you about this family as far as connectivity. There's so many children that, that branch off from my parents that if a niece or nephew are arguing or sister and brother are arguing, stay in your lane. We don't get involved. Usually everything that's going on in the family, no matter which state they're in, I already know. They've already passed it, but I stay in Sandra's lane. Everybody in our family needs to stay in their lane because the minute you try to step in and help one of them, you're in trouble. Because mm. they forget that they were even mad at each other and they're going to be after you and it's going to be your fault. So mm -hmm. connectivity is very important in family to stay together. I think that after leaving Pennsylvania and getting married to my husband, Aaron, and living on Andrews Air Force Base and started going to school, I told him I felt like living on Andrews Air Force Base was just another form of the projects. Mm. Now, follow this. To me, it was another form of the projects, Lisa, and I feel that way because it's government housing. We had to get on the list to get the housing. We had kids, so we, we got our housing. I lived on, and, I lived, my dad was military. So you understand. <laughs> it's almost like living in the projects, only it's neater, cleaner, you have more options, more things to go and everything, but you're still stuck if you don't move ahead. So I could stay on base and my husband went to many different assignments and left us alone for a year, quite a few mm -hmm. times, so that we did not have to move. And you know how that works. So we yeah. stayed. So I told him about a year, the first time he left to go to Korea, the second time when I was on base, I said, you know what? I need to get educated because we need to get out of here. Because one day you're going to retire. What are we going to have? So I decided I wanted to go to nursing school. And I always felt that I wanted to be a nurse. And I got that from my, my godmother, my mother, my guardian mother, who helped me get through school. You read that. Mm -hmm. She was a nurse. And she always told me I could be a nurse. She used to always tease me because I was afraid of needles. She said, well, that's okay because you're not going to be getting them. You're going to be giving them. So she helped me start with that dream. And I had a cousin in Pennsylvania named Marjorie Hawkins who always used to fill me up with things why it was a good idea to be a nurse and that I could do it. I didn't think I could do it. So I started going to school. I went to George Mason for my nursing degree, graduated everything, got out, got my first job and got my first check. And oh my God, my husband, my kids thought we were just damn rich. Well, I thought we were rich too, but that check didn't go far. So we knew we needed more. So we worked it and we had been on Andrews Air Force Base for seven years. And I told my husband, 
we need to get our own house. And you read in the book, we finally got a house. Mm -hmm. That's a long story how we got that house. Yeah. <laughs> that was funny, but I had a, a way of going after something and getting it. I mean, I'm not going to take no for an answer. Never that. Not me. So we got in our own house and we got over there and our kids came with us. And then there in my house is a hodgepodge of kids, foster kids, military defense. Everybody lived with us. We're this big, everybody thought they were going to drop in at the Stockton's house and live here. And we let them. People lived in. Finally, when the house was all empty and I was and I was actually in the, the reserves then enlisted. But finally, when the house got empty and everything out, mm -hmm. I uh, told Aaron, I said, oh, my God, I got to do something for Sandra. You know, and I told him I was thinking about going back active duty. And he said, well, if that's what you want to do, you know, it's OK with me. You know, so I just applied, went back after duty. And then that was when I was starting to find out that I could love Sandra. Because mm -hmm. I knew for me, because I never, Sandra never lived alone. So I'm pregnant at 15, 16, 18, 19, kids, in and out, everywhere. I have never lived alone. I miss growing up as a teenager. Teenagers are gone. You get pregnant as a teenager, you're a grown up. You don't get to do right. the fun things. I'm just all gone. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'm stepping out on faith for Sandra now. Let me do this after after duty thing and go find Sandra. And you know, believe it or not, when I went in the military, I had so much fun. I did so many things, but I was still lonely because now I'm overseas in Korea and my husband's not there and no kids. And I'm making friends, but it's not like him being close to me or my kids. But it was good experiences. Mm -hmm. So I got through all those things and I came home on and I stayed in the military active duty for four years, five years, came back out and went in the reserves again. I'm sitting home again, Lisa. My husband's at work because he always stayed busy. I'm sitting home, sitting at the kitchen table, reading the story about this foster child that they were trying to find a family for her um. because she was she was expecting from, she was Caucasian, she was expecting from an uh, Afro-American boy and they couldn't place her. And I said, that's just damn crazy. It shouldn't matter what color that child is. Mm -hmm. Somebody's a help. So I read the article and I told Aaron about it when he came home. He said, well, go after her. I said, okay. So when I got there to the meeting, I made the phone call and they gave me the point. When I got there, two other women showed up for that same story. They were Caucasian, I'm black. And they told us that that child had already been placed. But so we all figured that was a, a bait and switch. They needed parents. Mm. So my first child I was after was um, Caucasian, but and I wanted her, I read all the files. They said, well, we never placed, we never mixed races. Mm -hmm. How crazy is that? What are you talking about? So they gave me her, her, her name was Michelle West in touch with me now. She's a sweetheart. Of course, she's in her 40s now. But it was from then on, it was just history. We just took kids after kids after kids after kids. And what I find about, that's when I started loving Sandra. Because now I knew what I want to do, how I was really benefiting doing something that I loved. Mm -hmm. Not because I had to, but because I wanted to. Wanted to. Mm -hmm. Other thing is just because I had to. You know, my family members came. I felt like I had to because my mom was in my head. This is family. You need to help. Right. This is something I did. And when I brought to Andrew, we brought the first child. He just loved it. And Michelle West was awesome. She, she introduced us to country music. Mm. She introduced so many things that we didn't know that we're not into. Mm -hmm. so that is when I really started finding out that I love Sandra. And I think when they say that it takes a village to raise a child. It does. It does indeed. You get a foster child who comes to you with their baggage. And I'm not talking about a bag, luggage. I'm talking about mental and physical barrier, you know, stuff they got holding in there, baggage is just not out. So as a foster parent, you have to figure out how to decipher mm. and the importance and order of how you're going to try to tackle these problems for this child. You know, so we we started with girls and we had many girls and I won't name them. We had many girls. I love them. But the thing I found out is because 
I was working so much then full time because even though I was still reserve, I was still active duty RN at the Veterans Hospital. My husband was there more than me. And then there was a young lady who accused um, her father, foster parent, of doing something inappropriate with her. So hmm. that family was kind of on lockdown. They moved the children. It's a whole big thing when you that happens. So I read that from our agency, and I come, came home and told my husband. I said, "After girls that we have, we had three leave. We're only going to go. We're only going to do boys." At that point, we switched gears and went to all boys. We did all boys, you know, and that was better because he was home more than me. Mm -hmm. So we had lots and lots of experiences, you know. And so many of my foster kids reached out to us on social media looking for me. So now I'm in touch with quite a few of them. They know about the book and I've invited quite a few of them to write and add to the books that are happy about that. So that's when I really started loving Sandra. And as the kids got older and we started like two years ago, deciding that after a hundred plus kids, wow, that too. So then we decided, okay, the house is empty again now, but guess what? It's all good now. Cause we're on this farm. It's quiet. <laughs> we can even see when people hear when people get in our driveway without our alarms. Since our dogs barking, we know people's wow. cars <laughs> in the driveway, looking out at the camera, see if we're going to answer or not going to answer. It depends. So now it's okay with just us two, cause we never had us two. Wow! After some years. Oh, after all these years, and then way back just before foster kids, I told Aaron, we got to find us. We started traveling. We went to Germany, Egypt. You name it, we've been there. Dubai, oh, we just place in London. We just started traveling everywhere and just having fun. I said, this is what we've been missing. But now it's our time. It's our time. So um, I like still helping people. And I know I have on social media, my GoFundMe, and I'm trying to help a foster child who yeah. ran into some problems. And my goal is $5,000, and I'm almost there. So, so the GoFundMe page, the GoFundMe that you have, give me that information so I can post it if there's individuals listening that they want to help. Yeah, so it's on my social media site, my Facebook. Mm -hmm. And if they look on there, you know, Sandra Stockton on my Facebook. And it's the GoFundMe. It's like, it help, It says, help my foster son, John. Okay. That's what it says. So they're doing really well now. And Ann and I went to North Carolina to see them. We didn't get to see John because he's working. We saw the mom and the kids and so. We're happy that we were able to help them get, you know, in their own housing, you know, and being happy with yourself. And I told them it's going to be a struggle, but the struggle you're going through now is going to make you so much more stronger in the future. So I guess Aaron and I will always be helpers. My mom was always a helper. Mm. Growing up, my mom always had some stranger in the house sleeping and she done picked up off the road or fed them or something. There was always somebody there. Mm -hmm. So I guess my sisters are all like that. My sisters are always helping somebody too, you know what I mean? And I think about the things I learned from my mom. I like, like some of her things that she always did, like she always had pretzels in the house. Mm -hmm. I don't know why. <laughs> she always had pretzels. She always had peppermint patties. And what's those darn cookies with the raisins in the middle? I hate those things. Oatmeal raisin cookies? or It's a little, it's a little cookie that's long, kind of with raisin stuff in the middle. Big Newtons? Oh my God, I hate those. <laughs> My husband loves them. I, I hate don't them. care for them. That my was one of my favorite. Those Fig Newtons and her peppermint patties. I can do the peppermint patties. I do the pretzel with the Fig Newtons. And my kids today tell me I have deprived them of so much because of something that I didn't like. And now my baby daughter says she loves Fig Newtons. So you deprived them of that. <laughs> and then I deprived them of fish because I was nine or something with the babysitter when my mom was running. I choked on a fish bone. So I never fed my kids fish that you cook or fire bake because of bones and my door and when I met Aaron 
every Friday was fish on Friday mm-hmm. and fish on Sunday because he's from the South. They love this. Oh my God, mom, you deprived us of fish. Yes. I can remember growing up, my thing was um, I ate so, so many uh, red beans, <laughs> pinto beans. When I got old, and pork chops. Don't give me another one, huh? I finally went back to eating pork chops. But mm-hmm. pinto beans, you cannot get me to touch pinto I beans today for <laughs> nothing in the world. Nothing in the world. But it was all we could afford. And yeah. I can remember, you know, uh, you know, when my parents uh, divorced mm-hmm. and we moved back to Texas. And we were on welfare for a short period of time. And we didn't know it was. Mm-hmm. But I can remember going to the store and, you know, there's a stigma that comes with it. Even, you know, as a child, you don't know. And I'm standing there with the food stamps in the line and I waited till the store cleared. I actually waited till the, the lane cleared before I actually paid for our food. Uh, doing, you know, everybody's looking. And went home and told my mom, I, I don't want to live like this. And yeah. so we made do with what we had. And Absolutely. I can remember, you know, $5 would last us a week. Yeah. Uh, hamburger meat, beans, mm-hmm. a local, you know, a couple of bread. And we would do what we had to do. Yeah. But the lessons learned behind, you know, doing that with our mom and seeing, you know, my mom and dad struggle, you know, mm-hmm. because they both struggled within their own households. Sure. You know, uh, shored me up to be. You know, I, I know that if they can survive anything, you can whatever it is. I can find the willpower to survive yeah. as well. Yeah. And also, I, I taught my kids to fake it till you make it. I mean, I remember, yeah. I remember taking them to Disney, and we had our food stamps. I saw our, that story. We, that. we had our trunk with our cereal and our stuff in there and everything because I saved enough money for all of them to have their spending money. We thought we were rich going to Disney and <laughs> our raggedy station wagon. But my kids at a time of their life, we thought we just had it going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I got I, funny stories in the book too. Yeah. And I love that because despite your circumstances, you showed so much love to them that they didn't realize. They didn't know we were poor. They was no, loving it. No, not at all. Yeah. The, the knowledge and the wealth that they needed was what you gave them up here. Yeah. You gave them to survive once they left your yeah. house. What you gave them to, to move forward instead of all the physical stuff that sometimes yeah, kids that is old. understand. Mm-hmm. How long have you and Ace been uh, fostering kids? How many years? We did like 27, I think. Wow. Yeah, sometimes I come home and think I was a foster child sitting over there. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Who is he? <laughs> tell myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell him. <laughs> I also think, too, that sometimes when it comes to money, I know when um, I, we, started, we started to get our own grandchildren. I remember t- talking to my insurance man. We were talking about insurance one time. I said, oh, God, I just wish me and Eric could make enough money so we can have some money for the grandkids, too. I said, they're going to need to go to college. I don't know where that's going to come from. You know what he told me, which I always remember. He said, take your grandchildren to places and put pictures in their mind. You want them to go to college. So how do you do that? So how will I do that? I said, you take them through events that happen on college campuses. Anything where there's something going educational. And we started off mostly the grandkids or boys. And what we started doing is taking them to football camp. And as when we spent the first two oldest ones, Joshua and Kenan, to football camp. 
And then as every one of them get older, we keep adding one into all six of them are going to football, football camps. So we did George Mason and Virginia, we did Penn State and Pennsylvania, we did Bowie. We did so many other places and that gave them the college mind. And right now we have grandsons, I think four are college educated, but we didn't have to put any money. We had to pay for the football camp, like six or seven hundred dollars a people. So what? Mm-hmm. Now you got them seeing college camps and seeing these kids and like, wow, wow, I'm gonna do this. You know what I'm saying? That's so sometimes you have to understand. Mm-hmm. Give your children a college mind. Take them to even if you have girls. Take them to plays at universities so you can see what campuses look like in the in the places where you eat and the university eateries. There's so many different things you can show them in different campuses. You don't have to belong to there. You don't have to have went to school there. But there's so many ways you can teach your children. Mm-hmm how to get that college mind. I think one of the things that happens with our kids nowadays, and I, this might just be me, but one of the things I, I that bothers me is that all of our young people, and I have young grandchildren too, who buy their children tennis shoes that cost $200, or take the little girls who are 10, 11, 12 to get their nails filled, jail filled, or whatever you call that, mm-hmm. and getting double holes in their ears. Their hair braided with long weeds, and they don't have long hair. We, we don't sit back and think about why our children, boys and girls, get stolen kidnap into the slave trade and everything else because you are making them look like little grown-ups and you have little girls doing all stuff they ain't gonna know who to trust everything about you is on social media so if somebody comes up to your little girl and says hey i know your mommy no yeah here's some of some candy with some just or something they like that they know they they're used to money mm-hmm. you know and then that child's gonna be gone but you haven't prepared them because back in the day when we used to tell kids like our grandkids stranger danger Right. I don't care what they give you, what they got, stranger danger. Right. You know, and our kids, our grandkids, my baby girl taught me that when, when her kids and her grown up, we taught all the grandkids that. I think sometimes you look at these little girls. I was looking at one video on social media yesterday. It was called the competition between the young girls dancing and everything. Mm-hmm. These little girls doing them dances, they doing these videos, the music videos, shaking herself in their hair on her head and stooping all down and racking her body. You are just setting them up to be stolen. You're setting up for somebody with that eye mm-hmm. to grab that kid. So a lot of people, people say girls disappear. Like in D.C., perfect example, all the girls disappear. Girls ain't just disappearing. They're being stolen. And some of the ones that are running away, they're going to be stolen too. You're going to trust somebody on the street they think it's for them. Right. They're going to be in there. Right. So we got to think about so many ways that our children are getting snatched up. Even little boys, they make them into little prostitutes. Mm-hmm. we got to be so careful because mm-hmm. there's so many things coming out. It's like you said earlier, back in the day when we lived in our neighborhood, like me, my grandma lives seven streets away. My aunt lives around the corner. My aunt saw so my cousin down the street. Everybody's spread <laughs> out now. Everybody's spread out. I got somebody yeah. in Pennsylvania and New York and Florida. Everywhere. And the only thing they count is social media talking to each other. Well, we ain't got that way to come over and knock your head. Hey, grandma. Hey, I said, you know, you just can't just dip in, you know? Right. I think that our young people have to be more careful of how they're grooming their children. Mm-hmm. If you do all these things for a little girl, a little boy, a little girl says, your hair, your weave, your nails. What do they have to look forward to? And if you're putting two and three holes in your ear, this other, you chose that. Your kid didn't choose that. So when they get to the age where they can choose it, they have nothing to choose. Because you right. chose it all for them. Right. So that's I, I my, know, yeah, my son growing up, he he always used to say, well, so-and-so has this and so-and-so has this. He's like, and so what? Like, well, you're not so-and-so. <laughs> you know? And, and so we tried to do stuff when we thought it was more age appropriate for him. Yes. You know, his first phone at 12. You needed yeah. it at 12 because guess what? You were walking home from the bus stop. Yeah, the bus stop by yourself. So yeah. we would be able to say you called us when you left the house. You called right. us when you got when back. You got there. 
Yeah. You know, uh, the, the my daughter said to me, he that he could do. So then when we, you know, moved him to Florida, you know, and, and we always talked about how we had him around like-minded people yes. you know, who had same similar goals that we wanted him to have mm-hmm. and, you know, morals that we were teaching him, you know, all that stuff started clicking for him. Yes. So, oh, now I see why mom and dad. Yes. Oh, I now know. I understand. That so they, that's you know, what you want them to do. You want them to understand yeah. it later. Because my daughter used to always say to me, like, because, you know, I'm a teen mom, so I'm younger than their friends' moms. Mm-hmm. Here I'm in my 30s or 40s, they're like 60s maybe. So one day my daughter wanted to do something. And I said, no, you can't. We're the only kids that don't get to, to go nowhere. We don't get to do this. I said, I ain't their mom. Hey, if they move up here and let me be their mom, I'll tell them the same thing. But I'm not their mom, so that's not going to happen. So, But then they look back and think, oh, my God, thank you, Mom. Mm-hmm. They remember. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep, quick. It didn't take a lifetime to learn it. No. You know, which I, I, was, I was grateful for. Some of the things started clicking with him you know, right away. Right away. And, and I don't think like, at our age group, Lisa, mm-hmm. that there are too many women of color who can't say they've never been through something. We all have. We all have. They might not tell a story, but they've been there. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about sexual assault. I'm talking about many things. They've been there. Mm-hmm. They just haven't spoke about it. But they've all been through, we've all been through things. Mm-hmm. Find your path and get out of it. Yes, I love the honest conversation because you never know who's listening that will get that notion that, you know what, that's just enough to help me. Yeah, absolutely. Move forward, absolutely. Move forward. Mm-hmm. And, and to always credit, and I always say that move forward doesn't have to be a giant leap. Sometimes no. it can just be baby steps. But as long as you keep taking those baby steps, you're going to turn around and you're going to say, wow. You know, we're there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I made it. I made it. So yeah. I have loved the conversation today. Me it too. has been wonderful. I can't wait to get out to your farm. That's my next You're stop. welcome. You live close. Come. I know. I'm coming. And we're going to um, actually live. But I want to. I already posted your uh, website, which is Sandra L. Kersey, Stockton.com. It's, it's, it's Kears like Pierce. Pierce. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's Sandra L. Kierce, Stockton.com. Yeah. I posted that and you are on all social platforms. Everywhere. As, as Sandra's L. Stockton or? Sandra L. Kierce Stockton. Okay. You made me say Sandra, Sandra. But some people call me Sandra. <laughs> some people are Sandra, some people Sandra. I answered all of them. Okay. Let me get this on here so people will know where to find you. Okay. And you are just an amazing individual. All every time I talk to you, I just so get so enlightened. And so Thank you. my heart gets fed because you are a true testament. It I thank you. You are a true testament to the You're word. Welcome. When I say resilient and perseverance, you it just you just keep moving and your love for people, your love for children, the work that you and Ace do yeah, is Ace. just incredible. I cannot wait to read what you're going to come out with uh, to help the foster care system and families. And yeah. well, let's touch on that for a minute because um 
what do you one of the things that you that you touch base on uh that sometimes is a hot button because people think because you are a certain race that you need to raise a child of that race right and i'm gonna play devil's advocate for a minute and it could be true okay because when we talk about generational history that you talked right. about okay there's a there's a workaround around that and i think individuals that have a true love for helping the child right will find ways to introduce their history or their culture to them right but that should not stop and and i'm asking your opinion that should not stop them still helping regardless of the child's culture or their skin color. Yes. I don't think it should ever matter. I think that sometimes when people like say foster, I know some foster parents won't take kids that are Caucasian, won't take the Afro-American kids. I don't know why, but I've had that conversation with some of the parents, you know, but sometimes I think when you do that, you're still instilling the racial stuff. Right. I think that if you say, I'm only going to take black kids, I don't want white kids or Chinese kids or Spanish kids, you're still pushing that racial card. Why not? These kids are innocent. They didn't choose to have the situation they're in. They didn't choose to be in there. And quite frankly, some of these kids, they don't care who they're going to, as long as they're safe and taken care of. So for Ace and I, we've had, of course, Caucasian children, quite a few, and Black and mm -hmm. Hispanic, you know. And we had one little Chinese girl one time, you know. So, I mean, we don't care about the race, and no one should, because it's not the children's fault, the situation they're in. And when they grow up, like so many have reached back to us, ultimate colors, it's just a wonderful feeling mm -hmm. that they learn so much from us and they still stay connected. I'll tell you a story about one kid. We had Caucasian that um, his family was um, KKK. And we, mm -hmm. got this, we got this kid and he was white and he was a sweetheart. And um, we went out to eat at um, a restaurant with him and another uh, foster child we had at the same time. So he was Caucasian, another kid was black from New York. So he wanted to eat. I can't remember the pasta place we went to, but we went to eat. And all of a sudden, we're doing our menus and looking and we're ordering our food. And he looks down like he's starting to have tears in his eyes. So I go, what's wrong, Richard? And I will tell you his name. I won't tell you his name. I'm like, what's wrong, Richard? He said, well, I said, what's wrong? You don't like it here? Because we can leave and go somewhere else. No, it's just that I never knew that Black people, this is really funny. Black people go out to eat together as a family. Mm. Uh, I'm like, we do the same thing that white people do. He said, but I didn't know that because my dad hates black people and told me that I'm never supposed to be around black people and they're this and they're that. They're devils at night and all sorts of things. I said, well, let me tell you something. We do everything white people do. We go to movies, we go to dinner, we travel, we do everything they do. And to make a long story short, this kid stayed with us for a while until he got, and he came to us working on GED, hmm. car and a job. He did all that. He died after he left us a few years later and his mother contacted Ace. Well, she called me and she said, um, hey, Sandy, I have some information about Richard. And I said, uh -uh, don't tell me you got Ace's phone number. I said, call him. I already felt her voice, something was wrong and I want to hear. So she called me and Aaron came home and he told me. I said, I know what happened. She said, Richard's dead. I said, what do you mean he's dead? You know, and one of the reasons, reasons why he came to us, he was like um, alcoholic. And so he went to alcoholic, to classes for kids and everything. We worked through that, his GED and everything. Apparently, he went to a party with some friends, and he had too much to drink. He had to work the next morning. His friends tried to get his keys and park his car and take him home. He refused. 
They tried really hard. They told us later at the funeral. We went to the funeral. Um, so he took his keys. He left to go home. When he was on his way home in um, Waldorf, I think, he ran into a bank. Uh, you know how some people have the big rocks in front of their house, in front of the driveway, the motors? Mm-hmm. He was trying to go in the driveway and hit one of those. And the car flipped over upside down and everything, and he died. So we went to the funeral. When we got there, the thing about it was, was of course, there were no black people there. And it was okay. We weren't too uncomfortable. We knew about the KKK, but we still went because the mom called us. His father came over to Aaron. I call him Aaron Ace. And said, I want to thank you. Mm-hmm. I want to thank you for taking care of my son and teaching him the things you've taught him. He said, I can never tell him that. I'm telling you this. He said, but I'm, I'm truly thankful. I was wrong for the way I, I raised him. And then his grandmother came over and said to me and Aaron, I can't believe he even said that to you. So you must've made a change. Even though Rich is going, you must've made a change. So, I mean, you never know what kids are gonna get, what color they're gonna be. You take the kid from your heart and you do what you can do. Some kids you work with and it goes right. And some kids it doesn't go right. And you gotta decide which kid you can work with and which kid you can't work with. We got a, a little boy one time. And do we have some more time? Yes. We got a little boy one time, Caucasian, and he came in the system because he was thinking about killing his mother. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, Aaron, what do you think? He said, I think we'll be okay. So he was getting along good with Ace and everything was going good. And Aaron went to work one day and he was going to come home late that day, but I was home. And I started a little business. I started having so many failed businesses. And I started this little business. I'm sitting there writing envelopes and doing things. And he comes into my room and says, do you need any help, Miss Sandy? I said, no, I'm good. You know, so he goes back out there and I know his bedtime is like 1030. Mm-hmm. So he's still when you're on the couch doing whatever. And I go and say, you know, it's time for your bedtime. You should be ready to go to bed. Say, I am as soon as I'm done doing this, whatever he's doing. Bedtime came and left and he still didn't go out there. So I called Ace and I said, you know, this kid is still up. He's not going to bed listening to me. He said, well, I'll be home soon. So I said, okay. So I go back in my room and he walked, the kid walks into my room. Now I'm sitting on the floor. So now he's standing in the doorway looking down at me. And Aaron gave me this little thing to protect myself with just in case. I'd hate that to kill somebody's foster child, somebody's child. But it's me or them at that point. So he comes in there, he's looking down at me. He said, what are you doing here? I told you I would help you. I said, I didn't need any help. He came right through that doorway and sat down beside me and said, what are you doing? Because I can help you. And I'm thinking in my head, Lord Jesus, don't let me take this kid out. Just about that time, Ace comes home, walking around. What are you doing now? Oh, Mr. Ace, I was on my way to bed right now. I'm going right now. So he went up to go to bed. I came, I said, Ace, I don't care what you do, but tomorrow when I come home and work, that kid needs to be going. Mm. Now our program has a thing here. You can't let a, you have to give him a 30 day notice. Cause even when I came home that next day when he had dyed his hair red, you remember that story about Charles Bronson? Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I got to kill all people. He dyed his hair red and looked just like him. I said, I don't care what you do, Aaron. I love our kids, but I can't love this one. I'm afraid of this one. I was the first time I was ever afraid of a kid. Mm. Aaron took them the next day, packed them up, took them to the agency, and they called him. Y'all can't just do that. No, ain't nobody gonna be threatening my wife now. Her life, we can't have her being afraid of somebody. So that was the only time, pretty much, that we really said, "You got to go." You know, so you're gonna meet all kinds of kids. And when we start doing boys or teenagers and above, mm-hmm. now we're getting teenagers, sixty-seven, looking like men against me. So I need Aaron to be there. You know, but see, y'all never know yeah. what we're gonna get. I don't know, but we've had so many come back to us and be happy that they were with us. I had one kid when I was starting this business. I was so happy to receive my first $20 bill from selling something, right? Mm-hmm. So I found it in my office, right? One day I came and it was gone, stolen. I said, Lord Jesus, one of them kids that stole my $20. So I had two foster kids at that time and I knew which one did it. 
without even accusing. And I knew that was what I had first. I knew we would never do it. And my grandson was doing with us too. And I said, I knew we'd never do it. So years and years go by. And this guy shows up to my house in the car. And I look up, hey, what are you doing here? It's been like years. But I recognize him. Hey, Miss Sandy. You know, I wanted to know if I, I wanted to talk to you for my grand, one of my grandsons doing. He kept looking at me, looking at me. I said, man, I just need to talk to your grandma. Can you leave us alone for a minute? Like that. I said, it's okay, sweetheart. I know him. We could. So he came to my house. He started talking to me. He took out a $20 bill. Mm. I thought of yours and told me, I always wanted to, I always felt some kind of way, but I'm still in your $20. I wanted to give it back to you. I was so happy because in his head, that always stuck with him that you did that and it was wrong. It's, that was some kind of something for me, he said. And he was married with a child, had his own taxi cab company, and, do, and lived in uh, Virginia and doing things. I said, I'm so proud of you. Mm. And I even feel way better now that you forgive me. And I gave you $20. It wasn't the $20 I wanted with that signature on it, but it's all good. <laughs> but right. he said, you do so much out there with them. You never know what's going to come back to you. Exactly. And even if I don't get in touch with I don't know where they are. But I'm hoping that we did a lot of good in their life that they're using it. So, it is sounds like it. and it has poured back into you. And yes. You see the blessings that it has. Yes. Thank you so much, Sandra, for taking Absolutely. the time today to talk with me. Again, everybody, this is Sandra L. Kersey. Did I say it right? Kierce. Kierce Stockton. I'm yep. going to say it again. Sandra L. Kierce Stockton. There you go. You can find her story, 480 Cordes Street. Codurus. Codurus book one and two on her website. And you can also reach out to her on all social media platforms. We are looking forward to hearing more about her ministry of working with foster care kids and the book that she's going to be coming out with. And I think there's a volume three to this as as well. And just a, just a beautiful spirit, just a beautiful spirit about you. Thank you so much for joining us today. That's going to wrap up our show. Thank you. Come back and join me on Monday evening, you all. I'm going to be talking to Nikinji Raspberry, the God Coach. So yeah. you should be seeing some uh, advertisement going up for that this afternoon soon. I thank you all. I am your host. Lisa Harwell, and this has been Journeys with Jones Harwell. Have a great afternoon, everybody. Thank you.